Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Mindfulness of breathing in the belly, primarily because when you feel your breathing in your belly, there's more sensation available than when you feel your breathing in your nostrils. And more people in our culture are belly breathers, so it's easier to feel your breath in your belly, but also because so many people are in their head, um, breathing into your belly is a really good idea uh, to just start to feel your breath somewhere other than an awareness of the space between your ears or that vicinity. So I like to begin with mindfulness of sound, then progress to mindfulness of breathing in the belly, and then progress to mindfulness of breathing in the nostrils. Okay, the difference between mindfulness of breathing in your belly and mindfulness of breathing in the nostrils is that when you pay attention to the breath in the nostrils, it's a lot more subtle. There's not as much sensation. So I usually say to people, for the first few years of your practice, you should just choose which one you like better. When you quote-unquote, graduate from mindfulness of sound, which some people just, that's their practice for the rest of their life, and that's fine. But when you move from mindfulness of sound to mindfulness of breathing, you can introduce mindfulness of the breath in the belly, or you can say, you can notice your breath in your nostrils or your belly and pick one and just see which one you like. Like if you were teaching a multi-week class, you could do one week breathing in the belly, one week breathing in the nostrils, and then you could say the following week, whichever one you like better, that's what I would, I would work with. Because some people find it easier to focus on the breath in the nostrils than in the belly. Um, I've noticed in my own experience, just because I, I teach so much, so I'm always going back and forth between these techniques, that some days, um, I really love mindfulness of breathing in my belly. And some days I just really like it in the nostrils. So, um, so explore which one you want to work with. And, uh, and you can choose that. <clears throat> Are there any questions about that? Yeah. yeah. For our own personal practice, if you know, we have a lot of experience with sound, yeah. we all like drawn to breathing, would you still recommend going to sound more? Um... 
I think just given this course, I would just stay during this course to whatever we're working on. So, um, but when you go home, yeah, pick whatever you really connected with and just stick with that for a while. Yep. Um, one of the lovely things about feeling your breath in your body is that your breath is nourishing and it's good. I mean good with capital letters, you know, it's reminding you what's good about your body, that you're alive. And part of this process uh, of this course is that for each teaching that you hear or each teaching that you learn, that you need to figure out how it plays in your own experience. So when you learn the mindfulness of breathing techniques, um, find out which one really connects with your experience and, and just keep staying there. If you're one of those people that felt really irritated by a technique and it just didn't work at all and you're like, okay, that's the one I'm going to work on, give yourself a break. Don't make it so complicated. You know those kind of people? I'm sure none of you are those kind of people, but there are those kind of people who are like, I couldn't focus at all, so that's going to be my technique. <laughs> just choose the technique where you felt really good in your experience. And I, I said this earlier, but one of the things that I'm, I've noticed after many years of practice is that um, I'm still working with mindfulness of the body breathing. And it's still interesting, and there's still a lot to discover. Oh, and I should add, and, and I need to. And I need to. There's a... Um, a Buddhist teacher who was a great teacher in the last century who's not alive anymore, named Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he has a wonderful line about mindfulness of the body. He says, um, don't do anything that takes you out of your body. Isn't that a good vow mm -hmm. to make? Don't do anything that takes you out of your body. Mm -hmm. So you might want to think, like, not in terms of your life, but just in terms of a day. The things you might do that take you out of your body. And then you might want to squeeze that into an hour. And then just watch five minutes of how you function. And just see just the different moves you make that take you out of your body. So this is the core task of um, being a yogi, which is to always come back to your body. To always come back to your body. When the Buddha uh, was alive, he didn't appoint um, anyone to take over the Sangha when he died. And he had um, an assistant who was with him almost his whole life, uh, Ananda. And when the Buddha died, um, after the Buddha died, 
uh, many years after the Buddha died, someone came to Ananda and said to Ananda, uh, now that your teacher is gone, now that the Buddha is die, has, has died, uh, who is your teacher? And Ananda said, uh, my body. My body is my, my teacher now. I think all of us might think, oh yeah, of course. But I think we also know that it takes a lot of practice to stay tuned into the body, to know that your body is your teacher, and to have that kind of trust, especially when um, uh, genetic or physiological things start to happen to your body that makes the outer body even feel um, untrustworthy whether it's through aging or uh, illness or whatever, uh, to still know that we can turn to the body. And whenever I feel pain, I always forget that. You know, that, oh, towards the body. Towards the body. And when I say pain, I don't mean just physical pain. Emotional pain is psychosomatic also. And when we feel emotional pain also, ah, body, back to the body. Um, if you're anxious, it plays out in your body. If you're compassionate, it plays out in your body. If you have equanimity, it plays out in your body. You can't separate the attitude you bring to your life from how your body's organized. They're the same thing. If you're really worried, it plays out in your body. And so over time in this practice, we're training to start to pick up a lot of the subtle movements in our body, not just the larger gross movements. And I think this is a place where there's um, some distinction between um, the contemporary physical yoga practice and um, sitting still. Whereas sometimes in the contemporary, in modern yoga, there's so much wonderful, wonderful focus on um, big movements. You know, and those movements are so helpful and they really bring us into our body. Um, but sometimes um, um, if we don't have a practice of stillness, we don't learn the subtle movements. We don't learn the more subtle cues or the subtle language of the body. And that's why it's important to have bro both. To have both a movement practice and also a stillness practice. So you can start to notice like subtle ways that you numb out or subtle ways you're not here anymore or subtle forms of craving that don't look maybe like going to cold comfort. Is that what it's called? Cold comfort. You think habit is dangerous. <laughs> Let's try cold comfort.
And then start to note, like also we start to notice really subtle patterns in our body of um, just pulling back or withdrawal or um, kind of absence of vitality, you know. Not an absence of vitality because, um, uh, I don't know, we drank too much beer or something, but an absence of vitality because um, we, we're experiencing something that's activated us, and so we've kind of pulled back. Remember the posture we did the other day? <laughs> That's an absence of vitality. I notice this in my body just walking around. Like, um, I live now on an island, and when I walk, I don't see human beings. And um, it's interesting how just in a few years, um, of I hike every single day, and in a few years, just noticing how walking has changed so much because it's not in relationship to other human beings. And then when I come to a city, I'm so much more sensitive to other human beings who are walking near me um, than before. Um, and I think all of us know these, just these subtle cues in our body that are easy to miss. You know, like the difference in walking in the sunlight or on the shady side of the street. So all this is what we mean by mindfulness or attentiveness uh, to the body. And making sure that um, our mindfulness practice is not taking us out of our body. And you see this uh, sometimes in meditation practice that people start to feel peaceful and they want to go into this like spaced out kind of zone. Um, I call them bliss bunnies. Um, our job is to reel them back in to their bodies. I talked to my wife last night uh, on the phone and she was saying that um, she uh, bumped into somebody um, yesterday, a stranger, and they were wearing a very interesting ring. So uh, she, she was talking, the, the kid, the, our kids were all playing together. And, um, and so she, oh, let me just give it back up. I shouldn't record that. So Karina and I have this practice we're doing right now. And we both have a bit of an aversion to hippies. I don't know if anyone here has this, but, um, and like hippie language, new age language. So we have this practice now, because we encounter it a lot where we live. Um, when somebody gets really new age, we've noticed, we both noticed that we kind of, I think because of what, like we're immersed in all the time, we just kind of tune out and we just stop really engaging them. So we have this idea that now we're going to, because we're not present anymore. So we have this idea of we're going to totally engage them. So this person said, yeah, I got this ring. And Karina said, oh, well, you know, tell me about the stone. And he talked about how the stone comes from a meteor that hit the earth. And the way it melded with the earth, it's half space and half earth. And so it was really powerful, so powerful that he can't wear it some days. But he just wore it today, and the day is going really well. Everything's aligned. Um, but if he meditates and he puts it near his forehead, it just blows him away. 
And then so Karina said, where do you go? <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't know, I'm just gone. And so Karina said, where's gone? Where is that? And then he stopped talking to her. <laughs> so, I think I told you more than I should have told you. <clears throat> Do you get the idea here? Is don't leave your somatic experience. Right? If you start going into a, a state where it starts to feel really, really peaceful and calm, and you're losing track of your physical experience, then you're not practicing the first foundation of mindfulness anymore, which is mindfulness of the body, which is mindfulness of breathing. And so I can't underline this enough that the, the core of meditative practice in this map begins with your body. It's a somatic practice. Medi I always say meditation is a physical practice. But if you want to meditate for many years, you treat meditation as a physical practice. And if you want to practice yoga for many years, then you treat yoga as a psychological practice. Okay. And this just helps flip things around so that you don't think of meditation as something that's just happening in your mind. And another aspect of mindfulness of the body that's really important is that it turns your body into a protector. It helps you trust your body and it helps you become more aware of your reactions at a physical level. And it helps protect you because it gives you signals of when something's not right. You have a more clear sense of what feels right and what feels wrong. And I find this really helps with communication. Sometimes you're on the verge of saying something, like I just was. And then you feel in your body, oh, this is wrong. Have you had this experience before? Yeah, and then you feel, oh, this is, or it's right, but it's not the right time. And then your body, because you're more in tune with your body, your body becomes a source of empathic attunement with others. And so, so I call this unsentimental compassion. Right? Where it's not like you're walking around smiling and giving people like spiritual eyes. <laughs> but you're just attuned in the best way you can be that particular moment to others. And what's going on for others? Because you're tuned into your own experience. Or sometimes you're, you're so consumed by your experience because you need to be that you can't tune into others, but, and you know that. And you don't try and create a persona that overcomes that. Like I've noticed this week, I was thinking about this last night, that I haven't had a chance to talk to a lot of you one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Um, but part of that is I don't feel well. <laughs> 
and I, I, I'm, I've got a cold or whatever I've got. And, um, and so when it's break time, I just need to stand around by myself. So um, part of mindfulness of the body is you know that. It's not like I say to myself, I need to stand around. It's just, you know. You know. The Buddha has a very wonderful line. He says, I posted this on Instagram this morning. Your body is old karma. Your job is to feel it. Your body is old karma. So karma means action. And the effect of action. So your body is old karma. And your job is to feel it. So the sensations that you feel in your body, they're not separate from the choices you've made your whole life. What you feel in your body right now is not separate than the choices you've made your whole life. And the choices you've made your whole life in response to sensations you felt in your body are not separate from your ancestors. So in a way, almost everything you're feeling in your in the patterning of your body is ancestral and has come from choices you've made, your parents have made, your grandparents have made, everybody in your gender has made. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean? Like, like there's so much historical <coughs> patterning in our body. And the Buddha is saying something really interesting here, even if we think of it in terms of a kind of multi-generational body, is... Um, <clears throat> your job is to feel. It's to feel. So an awakened person is somebody whose spectrum of feeling their body is greater than ours. Because the problem with us is we feel our body, but we get blown around by it so much. We, we feel sensations in the body, but like we're fighting them all the time. We're trying to make them go away or trying to make everything get better. It's really sad to, uh, really upsetting to watch the proliferation of fentanyl in Western Canada. And... Um, just to see how there was, um, there are sociological issues that gave rise to an enormous um, problem with drug use that um, um, someone realized that they could make more money if they started cutting those drugs with fentanyl. And how many people have died? It's, you know, every, I don't know a lot of people, but everyone that I do know who does uh, frontline work in Vancouver knows somebody personally who's died. Personally. 
So why do we go for the drug? We go for the drug because it, it helps numb this multi-generational karma that's in our bodies. So that's why it's really important for us uh, to have a practice so that we can know what it's like uh, to feel pain, uh, to feel pleasure, to feel whatever's in the spectrum of feeling um, without needing to numb it out. And um, that's a really hard path <laughs> because sometimes you're going to have stuff happen in your life that's just like, it's, it's too much to, to bear. I think too, when we get to a place of that, um, so say we're pretty conscious of our body and our practice is pretty stable, or yeah, it's creating stability in ourselves and then mm -hmm. we can use, so say, whatever it is, like mm -hmm. for me, I don't really drink alcohol, but when I really want to drink, um, it has different effects on me. Yeah. And sometimes I think I want it and then I actually don't really yeah. want it and then mm -hmm. or need it. But then sometimes it can just be really good yeah. to have like one bit of whatever it is and that's what I needed. So yeah. just getting to a place of no judgment around it, just conscious use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, usually the use is unconscious. And it's unconscious because we can't tolerate what we're feeling. Conscious use is okay. Maybe. Depends on who you are. So, let me kind of transition. Are there any other things you want to say before I kind of link this up with what we have covered in terms of teaching? I wanted to say that on that first day you asked why we were here. Uh -huh. and, yeah. and I gave a nice little boring answer. And um, what you're talking about today is why I'm here. Huh. It's because my introduction to yoga meditation was just that gapping out kind of really blissy, happy, made me so irritated with my family and upset with my neighborhood and really made me quite inflexible. And, um, and so I just started moving away from that and looking for more ground in my practice. And so, thanks. Yeah, that's, that's what was really the juice for bringing me here. Great. I think it's really important to keep coming back to the body over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. So I don't know what the percentages would be, but I would say that you know it would be good for every cue you give. That's 
more psychological that you give one that's related to the uh, embodied experience of sitting or lying down. What I tend to do, um, just in practice and in healing, um, mm -hmm. just learning through some silent um, meditation mm -hmm. retreats that yeah. classically little attention to the face, the shoulders, and yeah. the stomach. So those yeah. three, like I'll constantly scan. Yeah. If I want to start thinking, this gets tighter. If I'm feeling nervous, yeah. this is, so if I can scan those areas, so I'll cue those with whatever. Great. If it's sound or it's breath, I'm always still doing those areas yeah. to flush and yeah. so that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. Um, sort of a big question I have um, about my own practice. Would you say there's a disconnect if some of the um, pain in your own day to day life isn't coming up during your practice? Nope. And is that something to like work towards in a way? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> like if the pain in your life doesn't like, like show up when you're sitting? Yeah, like. Um, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well. Yeah. So then that's something that happens over time. I I find that um, when people start getting more serious about practice, they start coming on retreats, and as you start going on retreats and you connect with community and you connect with teachers, all of your stuff just starts showing up. Good luck. <laughs> Yeah. is by leaving, you know, through third eye and going out. Uh -huh. yeah. So, and I don't want to give that up. Yeah. Um, so I really wrestle with this being in this body because yeah. the gift is to go out into this room. Uh -huh. So how do I, I don't know. Um, I'm wondering, I don't know what the question is. I think Well, that's going to be a great path for you to I explore. I'm very ungrounded, and that's also part of the problem in my going out. So. Yeah, I think on the one hand, um, one response could be um, when you're visualizing mm -hmm. or using the third eye, as you say, do that. When you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, do that. And um, try not to mix them. Okay. Like, keep them separate. That's very helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you could explore over time, as you get the hang of what we mean by mindful of a breathing body, is to um, use this gift of um, being able to see without leaving your body. Good response from, from myself and others is 
a visualization, yeah. um, but visualizing the breath moving in either a figure eight or um, the infinity symbol, if that's more comfortable. Yeah. Is that considered keeping someone in their body still? Um, well, the problem with that technique, I think, would be that it's a little bit conceptual. Um, so I would choose something that was a little more gross. Like piece in, piece out. Piece in, piece out. Simple, simple, simple. Okay. Cold, warm. Right. Yeah. Um, just something really, really simple. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.